Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Monday, January 23rd. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, the state's university hospital adds a burn unit. Then emergency services in the Gulf South are spending more time waiting to offload patients at hospitals, and that means fewer of them are responding to calls at any given time. Plus, the Mississippi House of Representatives passes a bill limiting gender-affirming care. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The University of Mississippi Medical Center has officially established a new burn center. This development comes after the burn center at Merritt Health Central in Jackson closed last year. The Mississippi Institutions of Higher Learning approved a request to establish and operate the center last week. Dr. Alan Jones is the Associate Vice Chancellor for Clinical Affairs at the Medical Center. That's the only academic medical center in the state. And as the only level one trauma center in the state, we're the natural place for this to occur. We have all of the necessary infrastructure already in place to fill this gap. So we're excited about being able to to bring this to the state of Mississippi. We've treated, uh, really since the burn center at Central Close, we've been treating a number of patients. We've had uh, a large number of inpatients, and then we've had a lot of patients through our ER and through our clinics. Jones also says being able to provide in-state services to Mississippi families is an essential element of quality care. Well, anytime you can keep care care close to where patients are, it's good. You know, um, uh, as Dr. Arnold could tell you more about, uh, a, a, a victim of a burn is a very substantial event in somebody's life. So not only uh, is having to go out of state and, you know, displace your family and your resources and be away from things um, disruptive, you know, you're also trying to be healed and uh, get better. So we believe that the care being organized in the state of Mississippi and close to patients, Mississippi patients, is is actually going to help them, help them get better sooner and make sure they feel uh, more supported through the process. Dr. Pinot, Peter Arnold is Chief of Plastic Surgery at UMMC and will serve as the medical director for the new burn center. He tells our Lacey Alexander, burn care takes a comprehensive approach. Burn care requires uh, a huge resource uh, of multidisciplinary care. Um, You need to be able to take care of anybody who comes through your door, uh, including trauma patients, And so being centrally located in the state and having all medical subspecialties in a level one trauma center is really a logical place for these patients to come. And, um, you know, having no burn care capabilities from in terms of a burn center, like a designated burn center, we feel like this is a a good opportunity to 
expand our ability to care for more of our citizens. You guys talked about how this is kind of an interdisciplinary health care. Um, wh- who are you going to be working with when you tend to these patients? Right, so there, you, there's some obvious ones straight away. So anesthesia, surgery, trauma surgery, plastic surgery. But as you get further down and as the burns become more complex and larger, you t- start talking about lung specialists. You start talking about physical therapy, um, really almost anything. I mean, a, a great example is laboratory you know, blood bank. These patients require a tremendous amount of resources really from everybody. And so um, we feel that we're positioned really well because those are in place right now. And we're simply just pivoting to a different pathology. So we can manage pretty much anything that comes through our doors, but we really feel it's important to build it in a stepwise measured way to provide the safest care to get the best outcomes. We talked about a little bit how you guys plan to hire some new people. Talk to me about the confidence you have in your current staff to fill those needs. Right. So I think what we've got right now is uh, we are going to be able to safely care for the patients that, that come to our uh, that come to the hospital. There are some subtleties with um, you know very subspecialized specific burn care in the intensive care environment and the surgical environment. But everyone that we have now is competent to manage these burns. And it's been interesting. Multiple physicians have reached out to me and said, I trained doing burns when I was in residency or in a previous job. I want to be involved. Like, let me know. I want to help. I mean, I had two emails last night, people that were, like, excited on email. Like, I didn't know we were going to do this, and I'm in. Let me know what I can do. Because I worked in a, in a hospital with a burn center for 15 years, and, and I'm, let, me, let me help. Will the establishment or certification of this center require further education for anyone on staff? Yeah, so, so we have a, a broad-based education program for, you know, frontline people, uh, physicians, nurses, uh, technicians, everybody. Um, and we have, uh, we're, we're generating those, those plans with help from surrounding burn centers. And, 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 you know, again, the burn community is a very close community. So yes, this is going to be, uh, this is going to be a big endeavor in every way uh, for an academic medical center. When you think about patient care, education, and research. One last question for you. There's a lot of conversation right now about health care in Mississippi in decline. We're hearing about centers, hospitals closing. What does it mean to you to be a part of something on the opposite side of the ed- like conversation? Right. So um, it, mixed feelings, right? I mean, we're, we're really fortunate to be in the position that we're in and to have the privilege to take care of uh, anyone who walks through our doors and, and eyes wide open to rural medicine. It's, it's not just Mississippi. It's everywhere. And we just have to be available to do what we can to help whoever we can. And, um, you know, I, I don't know what the answer to the rural medicine problem is. It's just it's it is a it is a challenging thing. But again, very fortunate. Uh, and, and, and it's not un, underappreciated by me that we're in the position that we are. Thank you, Dr. Honor. Dr. Peter Arnold is Chief of Plastic Surgery at UMMC and will serve as the medical director for the new burn center. Coming up, emergency services in the Gulf South are spending more time waiting to offload patients at hospitals, and that means fewer of them are responding to calls at any given time. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. 
Are we on the air? If you want to hear the best independent and underground music from Mississippi and beyond, you have to tune in to Third Coast Radio. It doesn't matter if it's hip-hop, rock, R&B, Southern Soul, or blues. If it's an artist you need to know about, we'll be playing them right here. Join me, Kamikaze, with the cool kids for Third Coast Radio, brought to you by Jackson Indie Music Week and Mississippi Public Broadcasting, Saturdays at 5 p.m. on MPB Think Radio, also available on SoundCloud. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Hospitals across the country are experiencing a severe health care staffing shortage that is impacting patient care. But staffing isn't the only way that it is affecting hospitals. It's also making it more difficult for emergency and ambulatory services to answer 911 calls. Gulf States Newsroom healthcare reporter Shalina Chatlani climbed into an ambulance to see how emergency care has changed. For New Orleans Emergency Services Lieutenant Noah Feldman, 911 calls like this are fairly common. I have a breach delivery in progress in a third I'm in the third on 610. I can drop off. Feldman turns on his siren, and we're off down the bumpy streets of New Orleans. We're going to a a labor and delivery in progress. They said the baby's possibly breached. Today, we're riding in a sprint unit. They don't transport patients, but they have sirens and extra supplies, sort of like backup for an ambulance. But right now, there is no ambulance. We didn't have a unit available because they were stuck on the wall, so they're trying to... Stuck on the wall. That means they're sitting outside the hospital waiting for their patient to be taken into hospital custody. The ambulance can't leave until that transfer happens. And these days, more and more patients end up waiting. The direct impact of being stuck on the wall is like... Nobody's getting to you. It can create dire situations for people like Alana Jefferson, the expectant mother attached to the ultrasound machine. Jefferson needs an ambulance, so Feldman calls a partner from another parish. They show up in good spirits. Upside down, inside out, about to show all you folks what it's all about. I'm taking it back to the old school, because I'm an old fool. Your other pregnancy. I'm feeling a lot of pain. What they making me laugh? They They serenaded and safely transported Jefferson to a hospital. While Jefferson made it to her emergency C-section, Feldman explains that emergency services, especially on the heels of the pandemic, have been increasingly strapped. And that's problematic for the quality of patient care. EMS data shows the number of patients who ended up stuck on the wall of a hospital before receiving a bed has more than doubled in New Orleans since 2019. That means more and more ambulances are tied up. Justin Back president of the ambulance division from Acadian Ambulance, says this trend is seen nationally. The root cause of it is the staffing crisis. It's a lack of capacity on on the provider side, on on the transport entity side as well. The U.S. and countries around the world are dealing with historical staffing shortages in healthcare. During the pandemic, people have retired or quit from burnout and lack of pay, and it's hard to recruit people into healthcare too. EMS is struggling as well. New Orleans EMS has a 40% turnover rate. Hospitals don't have enough staff to accept patients and ambulances quickly and regularly ask that patients be taken elsewhere because they're overwhelmed. The cost of recruitment and retention of staff in EMS and hospitals is high. In a lot of cases, EMS 
are the safety net provider in a lot of rural communities. And so this is a very, very dangerous place for the industry and the nation to be. Back says Acadian Ambulance is trying to tackle the problem by creating incentives for people to become an EMT, like paying for their training. And they've given raises to staff, and they're even trying to recruit people from abroad. But so far, no one thing is getting patients through the system faster. It's not enough. After helping with the baby delivery, Feldman turns back to a trauma center in the heart of New Orleans. So a lot of these units have been here for a while. There, about a half dozen ambulances from all across the state are lined up. All of them are waiting to transfer patients to the hospital so they can go back into service. Feldman says ambulance crews try to be respectful and flexible of hospitals which are understaffed. Some of our solution involves you know, making sure we don't take every patient to the same hospital we're spreading out as they're holding on the wall at other hospitals too, and we can go to other hospitals and see the same thing. But some EMS ambulances have traveled hours just to get here with their patients and are still waiting for a bed. It's clear the problem won't go away tomorrow. The hospitals are extremely busy and wall time multifaceted. Like you need to know like when you call an ambulance, it's not a show up, go to the hospital, get a bed. I mean, there's a slow process. Feldman, who ultimately decided to leave his post at New Orleans EMS to become a physician assistant, says progress will depend on recruiting people and setting them up to thrive. So they decide to stay and take those 911 calls. For the Gulf States Newsroom, I'm Shalina Chautlani. The Gulf States Newsroom is a collaboration between Mississippi Public Broadcasting and public media stations in Alabama and Louisiana. This week marks what would have been the 50th anniversary of Roe v. Wade, but the right to an abortion was overturned last summer after the Supreme Court ruled it was not a constitutional right. MPB's Maya Miller spoke with the Pink House Defenders, activists who protected patients at an abortion clinic that is no longer open. The Jackson Women's Health Organization, known as the Pink House, is the clinic at the center of the decision to overturn abortion rights. It closed in July of 2022. But the Pink House defenders continue to fight for abortion access and education. Last Friday, a dozen defenders took to the streets of Jackson with signs and striped vests, ending their march at the governor's mansion. Dorinda Hancock has been organizing for the now-closed abortion clinic since 2013. I'm still kind of devastated, and to a degree I'm still in denial. I just feel like so much has been taken from us, and so many young people don't realize that yet. Um, They don't understand the privilege that they had, and that it's gone. Kimberly Kelly is a sociology professor who has studied reproductive politics for the last 20 years. She says that if Mississippi wants to be a pro-life state, the government has a duty to protect the lives of mothers. 40% of maternal mortality deaths happen after the two-month cutoff. And so if we were to expand Medicaid, we could potentially cut the maternal mortality rate by about 30 to 40%. Why isn't that a goal? Why isn't that pro-life? You know, if you want these babies born, do you want their mothers here too? There have been five proposed bills this legislative session that would extend postpartum Medicaid coverage for mothers from 60 days to 12 months. Those bills are now in the House and Senate Medicaid committees. Maya Miller, MPB News. Coming up, the Mississippi House of Representatives passes a bill limiting gender-affirming care. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. 
Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. The Republican-controlled Mississippi House of Representatives is advancing legislation that will ban gender-confirming care for minors. But passing a bill last week, the state legislature joins about a dozen other conservative states in trying to restrict health care access for young transgender people. House Republican Nick Bain of Corinth presented the bill on the floor and took questions from a number of Democrats, including Zakia Summers of Jackson. What other options would this family have in the state of Mississippi if this were to pass? They have the options, pretty much the same options they have now, except for hormone therapy. They'll have the options to to talk to uh, whatever psychotherapist they have, to to see whatever physician they have, uh, to to help them, I guess, cope or or to determine if if they are, in fact, transgender. So they have the options that those options will still be available. What physician is going to see a child if we pass something like this? They're going to be scared as all outdoors because uh, they don't want to lose their license. Potentially. So what options would they have well, to leave not, the state? I'm sorry? To leave the state? Well, they certainly have the option to leave the state. But what I'm saying That's is... That's what we want. <laughs> what I'm saying is the child itself can still get whatever therapy they want, counseling, uh, a, a, a psychiatrist can see, still see them. They just can't have any of the procedures as defined in this bill. And if the psychiatrist determines that this is the best solution for them, they're stuck like Chuck. Too bad. You can't get it. Until they're the age of 18 under this bill. A federal appeals court blocked an Arkansas law last year that would prohibit doctors from providing some of the same type of gender-affirming care. House Minority Leader Robert Johnson of Natchez also questioned the bill. During a lengthy back-and-forth with Bain, Johnson cited professional journals and studies. He challenged the notion of taking medical decisions out of the hands of families and doctors. As I look and listen to these discussions, uh, We are essentially, you're saying that if a a parent seeks to find treatment for their child's condition, that we as a legislature are telling them what they can and cannot do. This is what this bill does. Isn't that correct? Within parameters, it depends on the child, but yes. But this is a health condition, whether it be psychological or physical. You would agree with me? To some extent. And that, the, that the, only, the only person that has the authority to seek treatment for that child is their parent, if they're a minor. Well, okay, I'll go along with that. I mean, you have other issues, but yes. That's I, mean, no, I mean, if you're a minor. Their legal guardian, their, their okay. parent, whatever. Right. Okay. I don't want to split hairs, but you know us lawyers, we do that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, all right. Their legal guardian or their parent. They have, but to my understanding, some of this stuff has been done without the consent, without the consent of the parents. 
Okay, well, that would be illegal, wouldn't it? Uh, if, if that would not, be illegal as the law stands now. If not illegal and ethical. It, it would be illegal if you, if you conducted a medical procedure on a minor without the consent of their parent. It would be I, illegal. I, I would think so. And I want to make, make sure that it is. Yeah, you are a lawyer. I won't say learning, but you're certainly experienced. <laughs> But you're experienced. You're experienced. And I respect that experience. In your experience, if a physician performed a procedure on a child without the consent of their parent, he'd be bre- he or she would be breaking the law. Is that correct? I would think so. Yes, sir. Okay. So what I'm what I'm what I'm looking at. I heard you talk about. Uh, you've talked to a a psychiatrist or a psychologist that you know. Yes. Are these people who have treated people who are transgender? Have they actually treated people who are transgender? To my knowledge, when I spoke to them, yes, they have treated people that are transgendered. Uh, they they are they are psychiatrists. I don't know that they provided any type of hormones or anything like that, but they have pr- pr- uh, provided the mental health part of it. Yes, sir. And, and uh, did they describe their treatment as something they do on a regular basis, or these were isolated incidents? I didn't get that much in detail with it, so I can't I can't answer that. If they if it's isolated or if it's in de- uh, more, I can't I can't answer that. Was this inquiry made in in uh, in response to your knowing about this legislation, or was it or was it through some casual conversation you were at? It was in response to me getting prepared for this bill. Well, I, I've just read a study from a Podunk University in Cambridge that somehow got listed as one of the top five research universities in the country. And the people who did that study, as opposed to a psychiatrist from Natchez or Corinth or wherever one of us may be from, they suggested that that the majority of the people that they assessed in their study had a positive outcome from from receiving this treatment, that it was good for children, that the long-term studies, it was good. The other thing they pointed out is that their study showed that 98% 98% of the people who identified as trans when they were youth, no matter what happened, they continued to do that as adults. So there is no, this study by that, you know, that place, Harvard, that's what they call it. That's, that's the university called it. Uh, that study, those psychiatrists, those psychologists said that this is, this is a positive result. And would you, would you take into account any of those studies that you evaluate this legislation? What my ears heard and what, what I piqued my interest about what you said was the 95%. Yeah. There's that 5 98%. 98%. 98%. 98%. There's yeah. that 2% that are not happy. Okay. There's that 2% that are out there who may regret the situation when they were ele- when they were 11, when they were 12 and they had this surgery. If they're going through this and if they're con- if they're going through this and they regret it, that 2% Needs to have, they have rights, too. Yeah, they, they have a rights, and they have parents. And what I'm asking you is those parents it, it, who have the best interest of their children at, in, 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 at hand choose to find the best treatment for them, we're telling them we're not going to allow you to do that. That's what this bill does. Isn't that correct? I mean, if not, not that you think is the best treatment, but if those parents think is the best treatment, we're telling them you may think that's the best treatment, but we're going to tell you, no, you can't do that. We're going to say that we're, we want you to take a very con- conservative and apprehensive approach, meaning we want you to wait. On the floor, the bill passed the chamber by a vote of 78 to 28.
According to the Associated Press, the World Professional Association for Transgender Health says hormones could be started at age 14 and some surgeries done at age 15 or 17. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.